Hello, fans of The Contrarian. My name is Steve Williams. And I'm Kelly. And we are here to tell you about our podcast, Songs with Friends, available on the Place to Be Nation pop feed. Now, on Songs with Friends, we go through song lyrics, we break down the legends of the songs, we talk about what may have happened, or sometimes just to entertain ourselves, we will blatantly make stuff up for our and your entertainment. Now, if you subscribe to the Place to Be Nation pop feed on any podcast app, you get access to not only Songs with Friends, but other great pop culture shows about movies, music, and primarily comic books. So please search and subscribe. Give us five-star reviews. It really helps us out. And we'll see you soon over at Songs with Friends. Songs with Bon, il va falloir quand même songer à repasser ce foutu permis. En attendant, on va vous escorter, c'est plus prudent. Une escorte à 200 euros. Ah non, je ne parie jamais des sommes aussi importantes. On va changer d'ambiance pour fêter ça. On va vous escorter, c'est plus prudent. Ça va, ça va. Je vous ai aidé quand même. Escorte, 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 escorte plus prudente. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash contrarianprime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O V N I O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, we are recording for Contrarian's Corner on The Intouchables. Hello and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by Julio. We are here continuing on the Autumn of Remakes, as you so fittingly dubbed it on our Twitter account. I appreciated that. Uh, first and foremost, thanks to our friends Steve and Kelly for that uh, introduction. You guys can be sure to check out their podcast, Songs with Friends. We'll be sure to have a link to their podcast in uh, our usual plug spot uh, below on our website. So once again, good brother Steve Kelly, hell of a sport. She, uh, <laughs> I saw Steve. She puts up with it. I saw her, uh, him last month at a wrestling event. And it was the first time meeting her, and she she was a good sport. And I really enjoy their podcast. Um, they they explained it there in the introduction. So be sure to give it a a listen. 
But as Julio mentioned, we are here today to discuss The Untouchables, the 2011 French film that damn near conquered the world, short of America. Despite being false advertising, because there's no Elliot Ness, no Al Capone, not even a cameo from De Niro. I guess the French guy, the, the rich French guy, looks a little bit like De Niro at the beginning. Racking in almost $450 million worldwide, uh, $430 to be a little more precise on that. I had a rough estimate, but nailing it down a little bit more. Um, I believe it's still the highest grossing French movie and ever be released in Germany and a couple other countries. So uh, by the time we got in America, though, the hype train was in full effect. It was the French were coming. And they were coming hard. <laughs> and they did. <laughs> At least Omar Sy did. A lot of ear play. A lot of ear play. The Untouchables, again, French film, 2011. Julio, memories of this movie going in. Um, so I couldn't remember if I'd seen it in theaters or not. And uh, so I had to text uh, another Kelly that puts up with a lot, my <laughs> wife. And uh, yeah, she had to remind me that no, because she watched it after it was already out of theaters. And then after that, she loved it so much that she made everybody she knows watch it, including myself. So, yeah, I have to have rented it. Uh, I mean, we're talking about what, 2011? Is that mm-hmm. what you said? I think it made its way to here in 2012. Okay. So, I don't know. Netflix. I don't know if it had been a... It was probably just like an actual rental. Rental. Was the Blockbuster still around? <laughs> 2012? 2011 America, we we were still reeling from Drive, so we couldn't <laughs> shoehorn this in. We needed to wait a few months, and then just uh, yeah, I saw it in theaters. I saw it at the Regal Arboretum Theater here in town. Um, the art house, the official Austin art house, wouldn't mm-hmm. you say? Oh, absolutely. I'm trying to think. It, Blue's the warmest color. We saw there. Uh, that's where I saw Good Time. Um, Jeff, who lives at home. Uh, I remember Curtis telling me one time the only sold out movie he'd ever seen there was Brokeback Mountain when it was the the only game in town that had it. Hey, so, I watched more. Speaking of French movies, I watched more there as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of packed French movies, because that was, <laughs> and of course, I was the youngest person in the audience by at least thirty years. We saw Lou and Davis there together. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Short Term Twelve. We watched there. We did. Yeah, The Arbor does not sponsor our podcast. <laughs> If Eddie was here, he would be talking about how they serve hot chocolate, because every time we talk about it, he would always bring up that they serve hot chocolate there. But this podcast is not here to discuss the Regal Arboretum. So if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, uh, first and foremost, we appreciate the listen. Uh, But if it is your first time, just to give you a quick rundown of what you can expect, uh, what we like to do here as we say, our little slogan as we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, Find a movie that's highly ranked, uh, also known as Certified Fresh or just Fresh on Rotten Tomatoes because that's, there's different ranking levels. I think Certified Fresh is the one that people use for uh, for commercials. For marketing purposes. For marketing purposes. It's not just fresh. It's Certified Fresh. Fucking cretins. Yeah. I think that means you know, you're know you like uh, 90% or above or you have some of the top critics. Okay. On your, I don't know. I mean, it's just it doesn't mean anything anyway. No, it doesn't. If it's certified fresh or just fresh, we're going to take it down a peg. We're going to tell you exactly why it's not worthy of that standing. And on the other uh, foot there, if we find a nasty green splotch, uh, a rotten movie, as it were, we'll make a case for what's good about it. There's no certified rotten, which there already... There should be. Yeah. I mean, come on. Be consistent with your People system. would figure out how to monetize that. Like the Tim and Eric's <laughs> of the world would figure out how to make money off that. So bad it's good. <laughs> certified rotten. 
We will argue our cases in the first half of the podcast known as Contrarian's Corner. If you want to know how we really feel about these movies that we watch, stick around for the second half. Being that this is a 75% fresh movie, a little bit lower than we typically do, but it fit in in uh, line with this arc of remakes that we're doing. Also, this is probably the first time that this app I use, uh, which is not that Rotten Tomatoes official app, but it's an app that it's like Movie Flix and Rotten Tomatoes, so it pulls Rotten Tomatoes data, and it was selling me it was 93%, so I was like, wow. It is fresh, certified fresh. Uh, it turns out that for some reason it was only pulling the audience score. So the audience score is 93%. And yeah, the official critic score is 75%. Either way, it's fresh and we're going to tear it down. And people loved it. Like I said, you would have thought this was part of the MCU with how much <laughs> money that it made. It's the most love France has gotten from the United States. <laughs> Since the invention of the fry. <laughs> yes. Uh, but being that it is 75%, being that it is fresh, it means critics loved this, and this specifically was a crowd pleaser. Yeah, I wonder if the reason that uh, that app was failing me was because the Run Tomatoes, at least when it comes to Intouchables, is pretty glitchy, their website. Uh, it wouldn't let me go past the first page of quotes. But thankfully, there were three of each. So here's the three fresh Tremendous. ones. We start with uh, Dahlia Alberge from The Guardian, who says, for once, the hype is justified. So The Guardian, that's British, right? That's a British newspaper, mm -hmm. British website. So that was like the beginning of the invasion. Like it went from France, started moving down Europe, and it hit, it hit the Brits. Um, then Anna Smith from Time Out. I'm guessing that's America. Smith, pre-American. Uh, it delivers broad laughs and tugs at the heartstrings without delving too deep. The very definition of a crowd pleaser. And then finally, Emma's petting from Little White Lies. Enjoy it before the English language version comes out. Fitting. <laughs> it, it just nailed it. September 20th, 2012. She could see the future. Was that movie this year? Uh, Upside? Yeah. I think it was last year. Whatever the case, she was more than five years. She saw Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart acting the fools. <laughs> she was Michael Bain. What year is it? <laughs> so The Untouchables starts off here with a uh, ominous welcoming signature. It, we, I didn't even take note. My sister watched the first half of this movie with Julia and I. It said, she goes, you think we'll ever see that again? And we're like, what? The Weinstein Company? <laughs> Uh, the I, I was I almost said the good old days, but no, not really. No, <laughs> the oblivious days. Yeah, the days where we looked the other way, maybe because Weinstein. It generally meant some sort of prestige, I guess. Well, in the case of this movie, it was pretty obvious. They saw how much money it was making elsewhere, and were like, "Hey, we want our finger in that pie. Get it on over." Well, poor choice of words. With uh... <laughs> they said, "Hey." They got their straw out and put it in the milkshake and said, we're going to take some of that, too. Well, drink your uh, French milkshake. We're going to call it Freedom Milkshake. <laughs> the Untouchables begins with our two main characters. We have Philippe, played by Francois Clouzet. Now, this is there are a lot of French names in this, so going to just forewarning, likely butcher a lot of them. Going to do my best, though. My notes say the rich dude. <laughs> And uh, Dries, played by Omar Sy of Days of Future Past fame. My notes say Bishop. <laughs> the movie begins in a dramatic sequence of driving. It's night, looks about to be the middle of the night. 
ominous piano music plays over what we're seeing here. There's just kind of a little bit of back and forth. This, for all we know, could be a hostage situation. The the If I went into this cold and hadn't seen the poster or something, I would not know where this was going. Yeah, but... It starts not unlike Drive. But we did see the poster. That's the problem, Alex. And I, I mean, I know the movie can't be faulted for the hype, but you, you saw the poster everywhere. And if you rented it, you saw it. It was the cover of the DVD. You can't go in blind. So I'm sorry. That's just the burden you carry for not being an American movie. <laughs> we just the hype came got here before you, and so the poster is the two of them smiling, having a grand old time. So I know that this is just two buddies fucking around, and it already makes me mad because they're they're speeding, putting other lives in danger. Oh yeah. And even if because you don't know the one thing you don't know is what's going on exactly. Why are they speeding? Are they speeding because? They need to uh, get to the hospital, which is what they end up pretending to do later. Or are they speeding because uh, they're running from someone? Because what I thought is this could be a heist. It could yeah. be a heist movie. Maybe we're about to see how the, the rich Kinda guy. Kind of like how Reindeer Game starts with the end. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they step out of the car and they're dressed in Santa outfits. I thought that maybe this is gonna this was going to show you how the guy ended up in a wheelchair. You know, it's like it's a heist. And then they, they get... Trapped by the police, and then there's a shootout, and the guy gets shot in the back, and then he goes, "I can't feel my legs." Uh, but but no, it turns out that they're just messing That's around. The end of first class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the deleted scene at the end of first class was Omar Sy joining the team, <laughs> coming back through time. <laughs> so, Dries is driving and just erratic, out of control. Is eventually pulled over by the cops. They pull their guns on him. Do you think, did you feel reassured knowing that uh, racist cops are not exclusive to the United States? I wondered why they did pull their guns out, but he did lead them on this really big high speed chase. And it was only, I think, one of them pulled out their gun, if I saw it correctly. The racist one. But yeah. The rest of them were like, Phil, what are you doing? <laughs> Le Phil. Uh, before he gets out of Francois. the car, before he gets out of the car, uh, Driss says to Philippe, uh, 200 says I can get us a, an escort. We don't really know what they're talking about. But he quickly begins yelling at the police, launching into this uh, tirade about how he's ill. I'm trying to get him to the ER. He can't get out of the car. He's paralyzed. That He's having a situation. Cops check out the the um, handicap sticker. They check out the trunk where the uh, wheelchair is. And then uh, Philippe begins having kind of what appears to be a seizure and is drooling. and uh, It's just gross. The police... Say, all right, get on, uh, get on out of here, get to the ER. And so we'll give you an escort. It'll be quicker. Uh, Driss gets in the car and then they both kind of start laughing and he wipes his mouth off. And and then um, we quickly change tones from that to the incomparable Earth, Wind and Fire September as they gleefully drive to the hospital. So even with a police police escort. So now we're caught up, even if somehow you had managed to avoid the hype. Now, you know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And really, this guy was putting lives in danger because his buddy just needed to be cheered up. There's no reason. What makes... At the sacrifice of taxpayers' money also. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, he gets the escort. But also, if I had been into this movie and I thought it was a drama and this was serious, I would have been really worried and really into it when the guy looks... When it looks like he's having a seizure, right? But because I knew that it was not true because he'd been fine just like a minute ago, it was just, you know, pretty much... Toilet humor. You see him just spewing stuff, and, and it's like, come on, man. 
Europe is supposed to be classier than that. I expect this from the American remake, <laughs> not from the original. If we hadn't already seen the trailer that featured the offspring's pretty fly for a white guy, maybe we would have been able to bite here, but it was just too hard to do. So not unlike Reindeer Games, it starts with a sequence that's a bit further into the movie, and then we move back. Uh, we're not really given a time frame of how, how far back, but Driss, Omar Sy, uh, one of our two main characters, is recently out of prison. He did six months for robbery and is rejected by his family upon arrival. His, uh, We believe it's his mother. We find out later it's his aunt who he goes to live with. Basically rejects her from his home, her home, excuse me, and says, I don't want to see you around here again. On the other side of the coin, we have Philippe. It's the French Dustin Hoffman. Oh, yeah. it's uh, when I remember when this movie was out, we never got at the theater, but I remember people asking for the Dustin Hoffman movie. It was like the graduate <laughs> Francois Cluzet. I'm just going to call him Philippe from here on out, even in the second half. Philippe is a quadriplegic who is in need of a caregiver. Um, he has several assistants around his uh, mansion, but he needs someone to kind of help him with his day to day operations and, you know, kind of keeping his body functioning and be there. Um, not to necessarily wait on him hand and foot but in essence wait on him hand and foot type of thing must be nice to be rich so where the peanut butter meets the jelly here is driss uh comes to interview for this job so that he can have his paper signed to go to the government that basically says hey i'm trying to find a job in the meantime give me welfare or whatever they they refer to it as his benefit i, I don't really know how their system works there but just deducing it from American perspective. But it seems Or unemployment, maybe. Yeah, Yeah, well, it seems... I couldn't really understand because all he has to do is apply, apparently, because he has no qualifications for this job. But Mm -hmm. he shows up anyway, and all he needs is a signature from them, and then that's it? That's all it takes? So, I mean, I'm not an expert on how it works here in the States, but I thought that you had to provide... I think you have to provide proof that you, you know, you're not just applying to any job. You, yeah. you know, it's not just, oh, well, let's collect rejections. It's they try to find you a job. They and then you go there. You know, the unemployment office is not just <laughs> it's not just handing out vouchers. They, you know, there's a database and they're like, hey, they need a janitor. You can go there. And and then you have to actually try. You don't just go to the, the school or whatever and say, hey, can you sign this? And it's OK. So are you telling me? that Europe is even further behind <laughs> than, the, than the United States when it comes to to this kind of stuff, to social benefits? You'd have to ask Driss. I'm not entirely sure. I think this movie was making stuff up. Well, we don't even get to learn about it. It's teased, but what happens is Philippe is so taken by Driss and their initial encounter and his whole cocky attitude, his cool demeanor and uh, blunt way of delivering information so much so that he tells uh philippe don't get up remain seated and philippe says why not we'll take a risk on this dude and see what happens uh so he extends the job offer to him to be his caregiver tells him he's going to give him a day to think about it and make sure to get in the dig there that I i bet you won't even make it two weeks that's all it takes that's all it takes for driss to uh to take the job i'm pretty sure he was in this for the wrong reasons when he saw the uh, accommodations and the redhead. I was, and I was going to get to uh, Magali, who looks to be kind of the assistant for Philippe. But from the jump, 
Drees just sees her and does the cartoon wolf where like you can see the heart protruding from his chest and that pretty much carries us until almost the very end of the movie his this whole movie is not so much a buddy film as it is Omar Sy trying to get laid <laughs> it's it's a huge pill to swallow though uh because you have to swallow it twice once uh, when you have to believe that that Philippe actually would hire this guy because he might be amusing for five minutes in the interview, but you have to live with this guy and your life is going to depend on him. <laughs> so come on, how has he stayed alive for so long? Well, I guess he is a quadriplegic, so he's known for taking chances, but <laughs> still. Uh, and then you have to believe that that Omar Sy would, would settle for this environment where he's completely out of his element, where he knows he's going to be looked down upon. He's already been shown to be like a pretty prideful guy. Mm-hmm. So I, it was hard for me to, to buy it. And then eventually what I came to understand, because as humans, we just have to find a rational explanation for this, is that they both, they're both in it for the mind games. So this is not really the movie that the poster and the marketing sells you, which is about a beautiful friendship and blah, blah, blah. No, this is about two kind of fucked up individuals that are constantly messing with each other. Uh, They're kind of using each other for emotional fulfillment that they don't get elsewhere. Right. Philippe is living vicariously through uh, through Omar Sy, right? Bishop is the asshole that he wishes he could be, but he can't because he's he's uh, a quadriplegic now. And, uh, and Bishop is just doing this to have the really nice digs and good food and potentially shack up with Magali. But also he has a boss that really can't do anything to him. It's true. And he tests him on several occasions with that. Magali played by, let me just butcher another French name here. Audrey Plaza. <laughs> Audrey Fle- Fleurut. Yeah, that's it. Audrey. Not, not the game. There's someone named Josephine Demieux. I see. I could do that. Well, but, <laughs> Magley, very attractive redhead. It's a goddamn shame that Jessica Chastain didn't play her in the American version. And you cannot tell me she did not have anything better to do. She was in It 2 and X-Men Phoenix this year. She could have been in the upside. Well, yeah, but But she takes her projects very carefully. I was going to say, you want to talk about shattering the Hollywood illusion, seeing Kevin Hart try to go after Jessica Chastain. Oh, I'm because him going after Nicole Kidman is 100% That's believable. That's true. I just like the, the two titans of their respective gender in Hollywood, Kevin Hart and Jessica Chastain. Uh, Chastain has a clause in her contract with her agent where she only does one remake a year. And so Dark Phoenix is a remake of Last Stand. That was it. Also, they're different years. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Dries and Philippe make up the regular odd couple. Philippe is very... Um, Proper and, you know, art and the theater and fine foods and, you know, the lavish things in life. Driss is just kind of rock and roll to the point. Bing, bang, boom. Not a big spender. He thinks he's uh, in awe and frustrated watching Philippe spend, I think they say, like 40,000 euros on a painting. Yeah. um, It was weird because he's he's supposed to be French. But he is acting more British, not the accent, but just the, yeah. the airs. The only thing that he was missing was drinking tea. 
Well, they they that's a uh, part of the montage of Drees trying to that's true. That's uh, true. Figure out how to help him out now, and like all the little things that he forgets to do, like strap him to his wheelchair, he falls out. Uh, there's the scene where he's trying to give him a shower, and he puts his foot cream on his head and his shampoo on his feet. Uh, there's a part where he spills hot tea on him, but he feels doesn't feel it because he's obviously paralyzed on his uh, from the neck down so he spilled some more yeah a very sadistic scene and uh one of the caregivers on the grounds comes in and is are you crazy and uh philippe says he's experimenting that kind of shit would have gotten you fired not just fired probably jail yeah he can't <laughs> feel it but it's still gonna burn his skin <laughs> right um that montage by the way how you like me now is the <laughs> <laughs> The song playing in the background. The next episode by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. <laughs> Philippe's taking a shine to Dries, though. He, he's seeing some things in him that he doesn't get elsewhere in terms of uh, friendship and um, assistance with boosting his confidence. This, of course, all rubs Philippe's friends the wrong way, so much so that one of them, I don't even know if we get a name for the character. Uh, the dude that looks like a French Rudger Hauer. Yeah, confronts uh, Philippe at a fucking French Denny's or wherever they are and <laughs> says, you know, we're worried about your new caregiver. Did you know he was in prison for six months for robbery? And Philippe just kind of, I'm the captain now, Irish. He, he says, you know... It's my money. I can do what I want. And he also explains to him he's the only person that doesn't treat me with pity. And then Rutger Hauer goes, but he's black. I don't remember his retort to that. He probably did some snooty French thing. He's just like, huh. <laughs> Twirl his mustache. Philippe doesn't care about any of this cultural, societal, any of those differences because he appreciates how Dries treats him. Treats him like a person, like a friend. Yeah, that friend that you burn. <laughs> It's a very toxic relationship, dude. It's just the entire movie is it's Philippe lording his social and financial status over Driss and Driss retaliating by making fun of him and his disability. <laughs> he does tell him no handy, no candy at one point when he asks for an m and What an asshole. <laughs> kind of interwoven through this, we meet the character of Elisa. We don't really get the whole backstory on her, but we find that she is the adopted daughter of Philippe. And uh, we learn a little bit more in an evening where uh, Philippe's having a difficult time sleeping. He needs to get out and get some air. So him and Driss go for a walk um, and they end up smoking a joint together as one does helps calm someone down. I think that that has a different effect when you can't even move. I mean, I've seen people that take joints the wrong way. Uh, Driss is lucky that that Philippe didn't get all paranoid and suddenly started just freaking out even take more joints by the way that bothers me i'm <laughs> not some even... big druggie but like <laughs> he took the, well i guess he didn't even take the NBC joints from special his... <laughs> from 92 he lit up he sparked he, up a doobie he sparked up but he didn't that's the thing he all he did was open his mouth and puff a little bit <laughs> twice smoking a j that was it leads to the exposition of his life though dude it's like 20 minutes the movie stops <laughs> So that we could just it feels like I'm high because it slows down and it's like <laughs> and then I'm wait, paranoid. What? Yeah. I'm paranoid that the movie is not gonna end <laughs> ever. We learned the past of Philippe. He had a wife, Alice, the love of his life. He explains uh, they attempted to have kids, but uh, they were unable to, and she eventually died of a terminal disease. Afterwards, uh, during all this, Philippe said he had a a penance, uh, predilection for extreme sports, speed 
flying, that type of thing. Uh, following his wife's death, though, he was paralyzed in a paragliding accident. So now that he can't do anything, he just gets his thrills by employing somebody who could murder him at any moment. <laughs> that is true. After he hears all that about uh, Omar Sy, he's just kind of like, well, it's my time to go. It's my time to go. <laughs> that makes it even better. Hi, as fuck at dinner. Uh <laughs> Philippe then remembers after telling his whole life story to Driss, he's like, oh, shit, you made it two weeks. This is cause for celebration. Give me another joint. <laughs> Let me take another joint. Driss discovers that Philippe is in a pen pal relationship with a woman named Eleanor. Uh, now, this was kind of rushed through, and it could be something lost in translation, but there were a bevy of women that he had communication with via telegram. <laughs> because this guy does not believe in email. No. Apparently. We had voice text back then, 2011. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have. What is this? He's wasting everybody's time. He feels that, like, it's the only way he can express himself, though. He can be poetic. He doesn't have to speak. They don't have to see him, that type of thing. Yeah, but you can be poetic in an email. Yeah, that's true as well. He he didn't have to. The problem is he has uh, the redhead. He's wasting at least two hours of her time because he has to dictate and she has to handwrite. She's not even typing. But she is there to kind of filter through the letters that he receives from women because a lot of them are hookers, right? Uh, well, he gets hooker letters, which that's a new kind of junk mail that doesn't... <laughs> Europe that's has stepped up their... basically walking the Vegas Strip. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the junk mail game in Europe is a lot, a lot smuttier than here in the U.S. I get uh, lenders credit cards <laughs> no hooker spam uh but but yeah uh well they filter him but uh it's not the redhead it's the other lady um the lady yvonne in, yvonne lays in charge of the kitchen all mm-hmm. that stuff she's the one that starts gossiping and tells driss that he corresponds with a lot of women but the special one is eleanor eleanor who lives in dunkirk the nolan movie Driss really wants Philippe to call or meet her. He's He thinks writing letters is a waste of time, kind of similar to what we were saying just a moment ago. Coaxes him into calling her, and by that I mean he just calls it her on the phone and hands it over, uh, puts it up to Philippe's ear, and basically forces him to talk to her. It's one of the most cruel scenes in the movie because you can see that Philippe, for all, the, all his behavior where he's been kind of showing Driss that he's superior and everything, he falls apart because there's nothing he can do to stop this big guy <laughs> to take his phone and, and call this lady and then hold the phone to his ear. So it's uh, it made me really he had a point. He's like, she put her phone number in here for a reason. Yeah, but at the same time, if you don't want to, you don't want to. Yeah. You shouldn't, you know, consent before every phone call. As the relationship continues to grow, Driss learns more about culture. He even gets taken to the opera. I, I don't think he was too appreciative of it as he just is laughing for the first two minutes of this opera and then finds out it's four hours long. Have you ever had to go to a, a play or something like that that you had no idea how long it was going to be and two minutes into it, you were just like, I don't I don't want to be here. I think I'm pretty sure I've always checked how long uh, something is. Uh, oh, you know, there's a... For me, it was it too. <laughs> no, back when I was in film school, there was this... Uh, it was like a movie from Yugoslavia, I think. And it was actually playing in theaters. And it was five hours long. Jesus. But but here's the thing. You know, we got in and it was kind of entertaining. I don't remember much about it except that like, we forgot the runtime. I was there with my friends. And after we'd been there like forever, it felt like we'd watched the movie. It was coming to an end. Fade to black. 
end of part one. And we're like, <laughs> fuck! It, it just hit us again that we're like, at least for another uh, half of this. That's when you turn to Philippe and you're like, how long is this? He said five hours ago, fuck. That's when you run to the bathroom. Driss may be learning about culture, but Philippe is learning about courage. Uh, through his relationship with Driss and him just explaining to him, you're still, you know, a man, you still have these things. You're an adult. You can stand up for yourself. Uh, you need to straighten your daughter out. Philippe kind of becomes more snappy with his staff and also tells his daughter what gives her the what for about, you know, you need to respect me. You need to respect Driss, respect the people here. Basically, Driss has successfully driven a wedge between this man <laughs> and his daughter. <laughs> He's like, what else can I ruin in this man's life? I already fucked up his his letter relationship, so uh, well, let's let's target the only other member of his family. Bad influence by Eminem and Dr. Dre blares over the speakers as we get a shot of Dries and Philippe with a couple of uh, Asian women of the night uh, smoking a joint, passing it back and forth, and. Uh, Driss is getting like a sensual massage and then um, Philippe's just getting his ears rubbed because he revealed earlier in the movie that that's basically the the height of sexual pleasure for him now is having his ears rubbed. That conversation, by the way, it did not go far enough because I did not believe that a character like Driss wouldn't keep asking questions. <laughs> um, by the, especially, I think that they're high by then. So. Hey, <laughs> yeah, because Philippe is being pretty ambiguous about it. He's like, oh, well, you know, I don't feel anything, but some things are out of control. You, you don't control certain things, which makes it sound like he gets erections. He just doesn't feel them, right? Mm -hmm. So so there's more to that conversation. There's so many follow-up questions to that statement, but instead they start talking about his ears. Really, don't tell me that you're not wondering. I mean, there Philippe... is a Lars von Trier movie buried in here somewhere. <laughs> right. Does Philippe climax? Can you climax if you don't feel anything, but you are getting an erection? That is, you can't bring me all the way to that question and not even pose it. We do know he likes his ear rubs, though. and He, he is that uh, craving and desire is satiated in this scene here. It's Philippe's birthday as we leap forward a bit into the movie. Uh, we see that Driss has been taking up painting. He just painted one thing and the true manipulator in Philippe comes alive. He's able to bullshit his way uh, into having one of his friends purchase it for 11,000 euros. I think it's Rutger Hauer. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, just his karma. revenge. He's like, you're going to tell me who I should be friends with. All right. Here's this painting. That was done in 30 seconds. You're going to pay, pay me. You're going to pay $11,000 for it. <laughs> and you're not even going to be aware of the fact that it was painted by a black man. <laughs> but it's also even the manipulation goes even further because he's also uh, manipulating Driss into thinking that he's a great artist. You know, when he finally gives him the cash later in the movie, he never says like, well, this was fun, but let's never do it again. Instead, mm -hmm. he's like, oh, you should keep going. This is this is good. You have talent. Well, we don't even actually see how much money he gave Driss. He could have just given him 2000 and he <laughs> kept the cut off the top. Rich people. I know. That, how much how money do you top? need, Philippe? A little more. It is Philippe's birthday party. And for a guy that organizes this party every year, he does not look too happy to be there. He just kind of has his friends come over, dress up, and he has... Uh, a classical musical quartet. Are they his friends? Even I didn't see anybody. It looks like an auction. The first <laughs> shot of it, like yes. they're looking at the auction floor and that, you know, they're all sitting side by side and they're going to start raising their, their hands and their numbers. And I say uh, 50 francs. Yeah. Auctioning on the band that's playing basically <laughs> or auction. Maybe that's how they do requests, but yeah, it doesn't look like 
too much of a good time. It's, it also looks like a deleted scene from Get Out because uh, Driss is not in that shot. It's just like a bunch of white people ready to pay some good money for for some some spectacle. So Driss eventually waits for the party to die down and for all the boring shit to subside. And uh, this classical music group that Philippe has employed is not cutting the mustard. So we get the unquestionable highlight of this movie when Driss puts on Boogie Wonderland by Earth, Wind and Fire and just a fantastic dancing scene but is eventually marred by less talented people dancing. It is painful to watch. <laughs> I I don't know if the filmmakers like were aware of the contrast. 15 seconds of Omar Sy just cutting a rug, and then everyone else in the scene just completely spiraling it downward. Old white people dancing. One of them even falls, and, and they left it in the movie. <laughs> just, come on. Show some respect. Would you say Omar Sy is... Uh, there's a little bit of real talk, but would you put Omar Sy... Up there with Travolta when it comes to dancing? Yeah, it's a new year. So, you know, Travolta was the king of 2018 in the dance scenes. And I think Omar Sy has taken the respective crown for 2019. This will be eligible for the five-year awards, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. have to keep that in my back pocket for consideration. (laughs) There's also this really uncomfortable sense that Omar Sy is having fun dancing, but not just because he likes to dance, but because he likes to show... Philippe, who's boss, mm-hmm. and Philippe might have all the money in the world, but he can't dance. And Philippe is, you know, staring at Omar Sy's feet for a good portion of this. And of course, Driss is just cutting a rug every angle you can imagine. Vintage Michael Jackson moves, and yet yeah, is in kind of a sense of like, look what I got. You're gonna make me listen to all this shit music all night. <laughs> I'm gonna show you what you're missing out on. A date between Eleanor and Philippe uh, was set up. At the last minute, unfortunately, Philippe gets cold feet and leaves before Eleanor can arrive. Driss had talked him into sending her a picture of himself as is in the present day. Um, He agreed to it, but then in secrecy with Yvonne, backed out and replaced it with a picture of how he was previous to his accident. That's a picture of him on the dance floor. Picture of him like walking a (laughs) tightrope. Or a picture of him paragliding. It's the wedding crashers joke about dude died in a hang gliding accident oh i'm hang gliding take a good picture i'm dead (laughs) philippe calls dress and he is distressed it's just it's too much for him and he invites him to travel with him on his private jet he's like hey do you want to get away no questions asked so they go to the alps to go paragliding for the weekend and the shots of them paragliding here it looks like they were actually doing it. I was pretty impressed. Yeah, incredibly irresponsible, not just in this story, that that he would do this. It's like to... the opening of Mission Impossible 2, where Tom Cruise really was just barefistedly climbing those mountains. Now, here's the thing. Tom Cruise is a pro. Yes. Omar Sy, I, mean, I mean, Omar Sy might be a great dancer, but he's no Tom Cruise. He could have died. He's never hung out the side of a plane for real and just kind of held on as they took he off. He is a solid 20, 30 years away from that. If he And that's if he applies himself. But yeah, that's irresponsible on the side of filmmakers for putting his two the two stars of the movie in danger. Something had happened. I don't know how they would have finished this movie. <laughs> right. It becomes a documentary. <laughs> just... The Touchables. <laughs> The tagline is, they believe they were untouchable. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, in the con- in the context of the movie, it's also just 
the that is probably the biggest douchiest power move that Philippe pulls. Uh, and is the movie going one too many times to this well? The 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 really the joke of the jump cut where you see Driss saying, "I'm not doing this," and then cut. He's doing it. Yeah, you know they do it earlier with the with the stockings. Well, and he says no, and the guy still just takes off in the <laughs> paraglider, and he's like, "No, I don't want to." And then before you know it, he's hundred feet in the air. I mean, in a way, it's 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 karma again. Because that's how Philippe was saying no while he was doing the phone call. Yeah. And now he's saying no. He's paragliding. They deserve each other. He slipped him, uh, you know, 100, whatever the equivalent of 100 euro is. It says, These days, just take cents. off. He's like, <laughs> he can say no, but you take off. Upon returning from the paragliding trip, uh, Adama, Driss's younger cousin, uh, who is, for all intents and purposes, his brother, uh, has come to fetch Driss, for lack of a better term. He's gotten to some shit back home in the kind of the slums where they're living uh, with a gang and the unemployment check or benefit as they refer to it, whatever it was, was it didn't make sense. It was mailed to that residence, but it had the address of Philippe's place. On yeah. It. How does that make sense? Because one, why that's would where he's have... employed. Right. But then why is he getting checks from unemployment? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what I mean. It's I mean, I. Okay, I'll buy it if the movie wants me to buy that France is so fucked up that they're paying unemployment to people that they know are employed. No, he actually wasn't employed because he didn't put acting he, that he was performing in this movie on his <laughs> on his tax statement. So, so that's a check for Omar. So the side. actor who no, played for- Adama was actually in some shit, and he's like, <laughs> "Driss, whatever your name is, I need your help." Uh. Philippe overhears all this and recognizes the need for Driss to kind of be there because he's seen how he can restore order in his own fashion. And it, it doesn't make sense, though. Again, Alex, how? Why would he? Because okay, so the point of this is that oh, your your brother is in trouble. He needs he needs you to be present. So I'm going to fire you. Yeah. So you don't have any more income. income. <laughs> and and I guess you can go over there and yell yell at him and fight the gangs, but you're going to be unemployed again. Yeah. He should just be like, I'm going to start giving you Tuesday nights off to make sure that everything is. <laughs> well, is it's a big house. You can shape. Bring him over. He can stay with us. So Dries has to leave. He says his goodbyes. This is where we get the big reveal that Magali is uh, gay and, and his extremely egotistical mind. Uh, Driss is able to convince himself, oh, that's why she never went for me. Uh, Driss working on finding a new job and straightening things out back at home. We get this really intense scene that we don't hear the audio, but it's it looks like an escalate or something. It's these members of the gang that his cousin was fucking with, and he's just like giving them the, the what for. No idea what he's talking about. He could just be giving these mean people directions, but well, we've seen him in action a couple of times in the movie, right? Because mm-hmm. there's there's that neighbor that likes to park in the handicapped space, and we saw one of the first times that we saw Philippe, just like the glee in his eyes at seeing uh, Driss manhandle someone, was when he just went up to that neighbor, pushed him against the wall, told him, "Hey, don't you know how to read this sign?" Whatever, and then uh, he also manhandled uh, Elisa's boyfriend. Elisa's boyfriend mm-hmm. uh, made him buy croissants for a week. So more than likely, he was he was manhandling some gangsters too. Which yeah, he definitely seemed like the heavy. He seemed like he knew what he was doing. His bishop. Yes, his uh, little cousin brother did not seem to be <laughs> in the same boat. But he's working on finding a new job. Uh, his replacement back at the mansion, Philippe absolutely hates. I believe he's one of the characters that interviewed in the beginning before uh, 
Omar Sy show. Interchangeable, up. bland caretakers. Uh, yeah. Not a hint of streetwise. Uh, or any humanity to their approach. The guy's wearing a, like a lab coat when he's waiting on uh, Philippe. I kept waiting for Philippe to go like, can you dance? <laughs> and then the caretaker go trying to do the claw. <laughs> like uh, Liar Liar. Uh-huh. <laughs> or he's like, put on some music and he fucking puts on more than words by extreme or something. <laughs> Actually, that's a good song. What would be <laughs> well, but Butterfly it's... by Crazy Town? <laughs> and then just yeah, starts dancing. Is this good? <laughs> now rub my ears. <laughs> no eye contact. Philippe hates it. Yvonne calls Driss over and explains the situation is pretty dire. Tells him, Philippe, I know that you've moved on and you have a successful career. Doing something, he he aced that interview. We mm-hmm. I don't even know what it was for, but he was he was doing really delivery well. driver, I believe. Okay, yeah. oh yeah, because there's a FedEx truck that yeah drops him off. But uh, it's like yeah, we know that uh, we kind of fire you on the spot, and we know that you're okay now. Your life, you rebuild your life. But how about you come back for some more abuse, <laughs> and so you can take care of uh, this guy that nobody else likes. So come back, he does. He picks up Philippe, and this is where we circle back to the beginning of the movie so we've we've come full circle now and this is the drive that's uh tracked by september by earth wind and fire when they talk their way out of certain arrest if not death from the so police. now we know that uh the solution to philip being bummed about not having good caretakers was to break the law yes that got him to smile they had seaside uh driss wants to take him away kind of get his mind off of everything during their time apart, uh, Philippe hasn't had anyone shave him, and we get the scene I remember most from the trailer of Dries shaving him into different facial hairstyles, played for comedic effect. He gives him a Fu Manchu, he gives him a Daniel Plainview mustache, he gives him a Hitler mustache, yeah. anything to buy just seven minutes of the movie. It's it's a Riforama or whatever, uh, you know, the... Those long oh, Linorama. Yes. Yeah. It's just Omar Sy just riffing. He, he Judd Apatow guest directed this segment of the movie. <laughs> or the French Apatow. Jude. 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 Jude Apatow. Jude Apatow. <laughs> just keep going. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> Big cigarette holder and everything. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> Uh, they do it several times in this movie. It's uh, how long is it? It's not even two hours, but mm-hmm. but it's padded like a motherfucker. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of times where it's just uh, Driss just going on and I'm picking like on him. Like Driss's resume. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I mean, unnecessary. I get the point, which is uh, once again Driss asserting dominance. It's like, what are you gonna do? I can shave you any way I want. It's not like you're gonna fight me. So that that's kind of it. This is uh, we go from that the last scene of real levity to uh, a lunch date. We think it's just going to be Driss and Philippe eating lunch on the the seaside there, looking out on the beach. Uh, but it's not to be as Driss bids his farewell and explains, you know, I'm going to leave, but you're not going to be alone. Uh, you're going to have someone here, and I wish you all the best. And he went uh, out of his way to schedule this date with Eleanor. Went over Philippe's head. No Ooh. consulting. It's, it's just he's it's, supposed to be his friend. He should know how difficult this is for him. Well, you can see the panic in Philippe's eyes. This is a guy that has periodic panic attacks, mm-hmm. 
why would you do that to him? You should have, I hope, I mean, I know it, it wasn't the case because Driss is just responsible, but you should have the doctors on call, like right there on yeah. the scene. Because if this guy starts hyperventilating, has another anxiety attack, this this cute romantic date goes to hell and he could die. So it's crazy. It's crazy of Driss to do it. Crazy of Eleanor to go along with it. <laughs> And and everybody it else. It works out for Driss, though, because he presumably just took off in Philippe's car and went back home. <laughs> Did you think at one point, the first time you watched it, you think that he was just saying, uh, I'm not staying for dinner. You're eating alone, motherfucker. <laughs> or he just kind of, I thought he was just going to keep walking out in the ocean <laughs> like Senator Kelly in uh, X-Men. <laughs> but he heads out. Eleanor shows up after a moment of sheer terror on the face of Philippe. He then finally breaks into a cold sweat and starts smiling. Um, but that's it. And then we He realizes that he lost. This whole mind game tournament that he's had with Driss, he finally he got he him. He bested him. He, yeah. he let his guard down and Driss got him. That's uh we see Driss walking off into the sunset and we fade to uh meeting the real um, not characters, but the real life individuals that this movie is based upon. So that's crazy because the guy, so Philippe looks like Philippe, basically, mm-hmm. right? Not just because he's in a wheelchair, but yeah. the, the facial hair, the nose, the guy that Omar Sy is supposed to be playing doesn't look anything like him. There is some real talk to that of why Omar Sy was cast in that role. <laughs> but to your point, yeah. It, I mean, I would have cast Michael Pena. I know he doesn't speak French, but. That guy had had a Michael Pena air to him. The real dress was Algerian. Could uh, cast Jim Belushi? I mean, he's got nothing else going on. <laughs> he could learn French. Yeah, I think, according to Jim, was canceled a while ago, so... Um, he's been doing some Duolingo. Josh Gad. Fuck. Josh Gad. You're not, Josh Gad would play Philippe. You gotta give him the heavy role. No, Josh Gad would be the cousin who comes in for help, because... <laughs> Josh Gad does seem like a little bitch that would get in deep with the sharks and need some bailing out. All right. So that was the untouchables. Yes. Are you fairly ready? difficult movie to shit on? Are you ready for the real talk? The real talk. We should have to the runtime will be two hours and 47 minutes. Bon, mon tour maintenant. On a écouté vos classiques. On va écouter les miens. Ersun on fire. On en a déjà parlé. Écoutez, c'est une tuerie. Alors, c'est tout ça, non Ça, c'est où tu faisais ça, c'est sûr. Ah ouais, hein Appelez-moi par mon prénom, je réponds plus, là. Driss. Driss. Non, je réponds pas. C'est parti.
we are recording for Real Talk for The Intouchables. All right, The Intouchables, which I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, Julia and I were trying to figure this out during our viewing of the movie. I do believe it is our first foreign language film on the podcast. We're we're expanding our horizons. This is something obvious, but I think that's, yeah, I think so. The Untouchables, directed and written by the team of uh, Olivier Nakache and Eric Tolendano. I think I'm doing all right so far with these pronunciations. <laughs> You're getting better. Yeah. Again, starring Francois Cluzet and Omar Sy. Released in France on November 2nd, 2011. Estimated budget of around $10 million, Box office return of close to $430 million. It was a sensation, to say the least. Uh, submitted for the uh, 2013 Academy Awards for Best Foreign Film, which, of course, went to Amour. Another Equally as uplifting as this movie. Uh, the only, I guess, big award outside of that, it was, it was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Golden Globes of that year. Uh, Omar Sy, of course, would go on to pop up here and there in some American films. He was an X-Men. X-Men. He was in Jurassic World. To quickly jump on the ball about what you had pointed out there at the end. Although the real-life Driss was a young Algerian man, uh, the directors changed the character's nationality as they had enjoyed working with Omar Sy on their previous film and really wanted him to play the part. He also had experience living in impoverished French suburbs, just like Driss. So how does real-life Driz feel about this? Well, this movie made almost $500 million, so I'm sure he's, <laughs> he's okay with it. The resentment is very, very small, just in the back of his head. If the story... If it may, if like the story was rooted around the fact that this dude was Algerian, yeah, it would probably fuck it up a little bit, but it's still... it's. Well, maybe it was before they changed it. <laughs> How? I don't know. Maybe real, real Philippe uh, hated Algerians. But that's, <laughs> I don't think that's the story at all. It was an Algerian uh, guy who fastened his seatbelt or his thing on his last paragliding trip. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> it's basically like getting mad at pain and gain for having a composite character that The Rock played. It really doesn't change the story at all. If anything, Omar Sy kind of makes this movie, so it was a change for the better. But being that it was 75%, and there are people in this world that really don't like joy. <laughs> there were some people that disliked it. Yeah, so we go back to uh, to the three quotes that I pulled. The rotten ones. Uh, there's Michael Nordian from uh, LA Weekly. He says, Gives its subject too light a treatment for the life-affirming message to feel earned. Too, too many laughs? Too much dancing? What's up, Michael? Uh, Derek Malcolm from the London Evening Standard says, There is something so fatuous about the whole Fargo that one will never again believe the old saw that the French are more cultured than the Brits and couldn't possibly be taken for this sort of gooey ride. Now, this is a British dude. Yeah. It's the London Evening Standard. He uses words like Fargo. Apparently, the yeah the uh, based on what trivia I could find, it seemed like... Um... The English, the United Kingdom response to the movie was not a good one. <laughs> Where's the tea? 
Yeah, I don't really know what their problem was. I don't know Where if you the have crumpets? it there. There's a review I wanted to read just to point out how idiotic it is. Uh, I have uh, the last one. is John Anderson from Newsday. And he says, if you love the bucket list, you'll be exclaiming, incroyable. Mm. Yeah, the difference is bucket list kind of fucking sucks. And this movie is <laughs> a fantastic movie. It's not even. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> to quote our you... guest, um, Jordan, it... For the bucket list, it's such a nothing movie that it doesn't really matter. Oh, but it's a, a nothing movie that was trying so hard to just oh, it get was, yeah. Oscars for everybody. And Morgan Freeman in that horrendous bald cap towards the end. Uh, so the review in The Independent, which is a British online newspaper, called it a third-rate buddy movie that hardly understands its own condescension. Why is the world flipped for this movie? Maybe it's the fantasy it spins on racial, social, and cultural mores, such as Driving Miss Daisy did 20-odd years ago. Uptight, rich, white employer learns to love through black employees' life force. That was set in segregation America of 1940s. What this film's, what's this film's excuse? Maybe that it's not really about that. Uh, you dick. Yes, I, I, I understand the immediate thing is going to be like, well, why wasn't it a black guy playing the Philippe role and a white guy or someone else playing the uh, Drius role? And it's just kind of like, well, because race has really nothing to do with this movie aside from one scene that you could potentially interpret differently. But at no point in this movie does it ever rely on the fact that one guy's white and one guy's black. That's why it just kind of... Yeah, I mean, it's if you, I wouldn't fault the movie for this, but if you were trying really hard, and I considered bringing it up in Contrarian's Corner, I was going to go like, oh, it's the stereotype of the rich white guy and the street smart black guy that has the bad company just got out of uh, of jail or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's really, it's kind of a. You know, if you're gonna you know what's mad. more cliche than that, making a complaint about that in a movie yeah. like this. <laughs> I was going to say, if you're really going to get mad at something, it would be at the film studio and the filmmakers and the casting department because the movie itself doesn't really draw any attention to the things that these people are calling it out for. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. You, I think that it's perfectly fine for the movie to not be about race, just like it would be perfectly fine for the movie to be about race. It's fine. It's... it's well, for this movie, yeah, if this movie was trying to tackle race issues, I could see people be like, yeah, it's kind of a bit lighthearted for that. At the same time, it's it's just unfortunate that everyone's going to try to put on those lenses to critique movies like this where it really doesn't play into it at all. It's not like there's the there's really no part in it where they argue about, you know, cultural differences or anything like that. It's just this dude who got out of prison and you know, is very blunt and forward and this very proper guy. It's, you know. Right. It's the equivalent of, of complaining that there's no racial tension in the A-team. Yeah. Right? That, that the fact that uh, T.A. Baracus is never, his the fact that he's black is never brought to light by anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they never. It's like, that's just who it is, man. There's that scene where Bradley Cooper just uh, doesn't want to drink from his cup. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and then at the end, he says, I'm honored to have you on my team. <laughs> Yeah, this movie rules. Uh, I wasn't sure going into it, like with how jaded I've become, f- mainly from this podcast. But um, 
Just in general, I remember really enjoying this, and the scenes I remember enjoying, I still loved, uh, namely the opening and the birthday party scene, and then everything along the way, it's just, it's nonstop, it keeps up, uh, we were joking about its runtime in the first portion, but it didn't even feel like two hours to me. Yeah, it, it's it's really funny. I think that that's what helps it move along a lot, and it's funny in a very surprising way, because the setting is so, I guess, delicate. I, I remember now I know how it all plays out. So, of course, every time I watch it, I'm just completely relaxed. But the first time watching it, it's just one of those things where, well, one of them is a paraplegic. And the constant surprise in the movie is how good-humored he is, uh, or at least how good-humored he is with Driss, mm-hmm. right? Every time that you think that Driss might be crossing a line by fucking with him, uh, uh, Philippe fucks right back. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's fun. That And that is... Uh, that's really what the movie is about. Uh, that this guy found somebody that he felt comfortable with. It's what he says in that scene where um, his friends like, "This isn't exactly what we want for you," type of thing. He's like, "He's the only person that treats me like a human. Like he doesn't treat me with pity. He just kind of treats me. He calls it like it is, type of thing." Yeah, I, I mean, it's a fluffy movie because really conflict. Yeah, is I was about minimal. to say, let's not make any mistakes about this. It's. For all of the things it's not that we just called out, it is a crowd pleaser. Right. It's uh, But sometimes there's nothing wrong with that. Well, yeah. I, I completely disagree with the guy that says that it doesn't earn its ending. It's the perfect ending for this movie. Mm-hmm. It's very... Uh, there is conflict, but there's not an overarching conflict, right? There is... Going back to the racial tension, if the movie was about racial tension, you would have that driving the story. And I think in that case, maybe a super happy ending would feel trite in the way that the Green, Green Book, Book <laughs> ending, <laughs> you know, rubbed uh, some people the wrong way. <laughs> some people. Some people. <laughs> uh, but I know is, three of them. <laughs> uh, this is just... It's just a good time. And it might take a little while for, for some of us to just kind of readjust the expectations because when you see a movie about a paraplegic and the bond that he forms with his caretaker you're expecting something that's a little more tortured and instead you get something that's very joyful very funny and it's just a good ride that arrives at a happy ending it just feels weird it throws you off right but it doesn't mean that it's not earned i'd be curious to talk to like in the uh, french market for this if like because you know i don't spend too much time reading french film reviews if all of their critics were so quick to just try to immediately pin this tale of reducted racial, you know, tension on it. That is true. Uh, because like I just told you in that when we watch the upside for the next episode, I think that that's a movie because, and that's because I live in America, <laughs> yeah. especially I've lived in America the past couple of years where that's a movie where, when you have, uh, Kevin Hart paired with, uh, with Brian Cranston, you kind of have to acknowledge the race issue just because it's America, it's set in America, and it's like at this point, what conversation doesn't address the race issue? That's I get the impression here that this movie was presented the way it is, and it was just like for French audiences, and they're yeah, just like accept it like a movie and not try to make bigger issues out of things that aren't there. Right now, I've seen the upside. You haven't, and honestly, like I told you, we're, we're finishing this movie. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. How how and if it handles anything that has to do with racial uh, tension or anything. Uh, yeah, it just annoys me. Like, 
look, like we said on the Green Book episode, definition of irony is a white male trying to talk about racism in any facet. But what does annoy me is like this movie was made the way it was made, and I don't think it was meant to even broach those subjects because it doesn't really come close to it. So when I see people trying to pin it with something that it wasn't trying to be or trying to overanalyze things that aren't really there to begin with, that annoys me because I think when you do that, you lose sight of what this movie really was, and it was a well-intentioned, well-made because one of the under like underrated underlying things about this it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Like some of the wide shots and stuff are just absolutely fantastic. So trying to pin something on it that's not can take away from what it is. And this, you know, it's not uh Terminator 2, it's not uh <laughs> it's not Modern Times. What are some of the other great movies that we've done here? Uh almost famous. It's not movies that have take like Take me home tonight. Jeez. Oh, it does not take me home tonight. There's no Dan Fogler doing cocaine. You know, it's none of those all-time classic movies. What it is, it's a really good crowd pleaser. It shows how you pull that off. How you you can take these serious issues, treat it with some levity, make sure you don't tread into certain areas where you can't tread back without treading shit into it. Uh, you know, that's the problem with a lot of movies is like, I hate to be harping on Green Book, but given where we are right now and what we're talking about, it's the easiest target. Yeah, but I I mean, I was going to bring up Green Book sort of in a positive way, because just like in the Green Book episode, I said, not every movie needs to be Black Klansman, right? There's room, if you're going to talk about race, there's room for like the different... But with Green Book, what I'm talking about is they tread into these areas and then they try to get out and basically they just track all this mud into other areas of the movie, so... <laughs> well, what I was going to say is at the same time, not every movie has to be Green Book. And what I mean is that not every movie ha- has to uh, address race in that way. Mm-hmm. There is an ideal world where where we're all just uh, race blind, so to speak, right? Where it doesn't matter who gets cast as what. It'd be nice. And, and so this movie lives in that world where it really, the fact that Omar Sy is black and Philippe Francois is uh, is white is not, it doesn't affect the story. And that's fine. But I think that like I understand people that feel maybe a little cheated because they, especially like these days you want that conversation you yeah. need that conversation and so you watch something like so this So they were and, annoyed they didn't get like the tension and whatnot. Right. And, and I think it'd probably be maybe even worse if it came out you know now as opposed to several years ago. I don't know if ago. we can have movies like this right now. But I think you can you know because there will be people that will be like, "Well, I don't care." Because there are people right now that will tell you that, oh, "Well, that's all you have to do is just stop talking about it and mm-hmm. they'll like normalize." It's not I don't believe that's the case, but at the same time, I don't believe that you have to have an absolute on just this kind of movie or this kind of movie. It's like you can have them all yeah. as long as they're not like ill intention like badly intention even green book for all its flaws i believe that it was you know at least going in the right direction i mean yeah, i think, I think that we was... said that in the episode green book let's close green book after this right like, it we... wasn't i don't think it was malintended it was just a bunch execution. of white people yeah the execution was poor right we disagreed on how my how successful the execution was yeah because and i know i have Chas on my side because Chas said i agree with you it's just a fine movie uh, no <laughs> Chaz, Chaz has been wrong before, too. <laughs> I have the man that loves American Hustle on my side. Oh, there you go. That's something to hang your hat on. Uh, um, but even, let's say that Green Book was a perfectly executed movie that we both loved. That wouldn't mean that there's no room in the world for a movie like The Untouchables. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's just fine you know it's and you get in a way you get that message as well of just harmony between yeah. people that are not you know that their skin is not the same color it's just not the underlying uh, uh, the driving force behind yeah. the story it i guess that's the thing it paints a picture of just people exist and i think people know that's not how a lot of things are so they can be troubled by that i guess but for me, for the hour and 50 minutes I spent with this, I think the chemistry between Francois and Omar Sy is good. I think Omar Sy is incredibly captivating. Like when he's on screen. I, Charisma. Yo, dude, out the wazoo. And um, like, yeah, that dance scene, obviously Travolta is iconic in Pulp Fiction. But like when I think of great dance scenes in movies, this one comes to mind, honestly. When he puts that song on and like just the way the camera shoots him kind of up and down profile, it's it's fantastic. And then we were joking about getting all the white people involved and like ruining the dancing sequence, but that kind of makes the scene fun where he just kind of wrangles yeah, everybody yeah, in. The, like, come on, spreading the joy. Uh, it's it's really uh, I mentioned it in Contreras Corner as a joke, and I remember the first time I watched the movie, I felt this way though, where I was I was afraid that we're gonna keep because you keep cutting to the reactions from Philippe. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh man, is he really kind of? He's smiling, but inside he's kind of feeling Sad, bad yeah. because he can't dance. But but the movie never goes there, which is fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it just. Uh, I think that every time that this movie feels like it could take a turn where it's just uh, where it's just too much of a downer, it just yeah. doesn't go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes me think that. I don't know how much input real life Philippe and real life uh, Driss had in in the story, but I don't know. The fact that they show up at the end <laughs> makes me think that they kind of endorse this version of their story. Mm-hmm. And I just don't know if it was their choice to, say, leave out the darkest part of this tale. Like If they had worse times than what they had according to the movie, right? Yeah. Did they ever get into... they ever get into a really, really bad fight that we just don't see in the movie? Yeah. Uh, or if it's really... They just had a relationship that didn't have that much drama. It's entirely possible. I mean, we live our lives, and most most of the time, we're not having uh, movie-worthy events happen <laughs> to us. So uh, it could just be that the relationship in real life was like what we saw in the movie. Had a few bumps, but it was mostly them having fun and ribbing each other and making each other better. Yeah, for like tension and... Uh any type of potential conflict, the movie doesn't shy away from it, but you know, kind of gets there. And when you, like you just said, when you think it potentially take a dark turn, it usually doesn't. And I think that kind of works in helping it flow because one, like you talked about some of the comedy and riffing is a bit darker than you expect. And then two, I think the big focus of the movie is this dude who's a quadriplegic trying to figure out how to live life and like the struggles that come along with that. And like trying to normalize being as, you know, air quotes normal as you can, can potentially be in that situation. I know that was a big part of uh, the response to this movie was like a um, kind of an outpouring of support from that community. And that's, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that aspect of yeah. it, you know, where you have uh, that representation aspect where, Oh, you have your main character. Yeah. <laughs> One of your main characters is a quadriplegic, which you don't see very often. And then how, how does that community feel? How, how do you feel if you're somebody that uh, lives using a wheelchair, you know, somebody that can move from the neck down. One thing I did read about that was it was the first movie to ever be honored by the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. That's cool. So, like, yeah. And uh, 
uh, just in brief reading, uh, the community kind of had an outpouring of support and things like that for it. So that's the one thing I do remember from uh, the upside. At the end, Brian Cranston can walk. Seriously, I'm messing with okay. you. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't put it past it. You know, there's been a lot of. You gotta have some faith in American filmmakers. No, I don't. Not right now. I don't. There's been a lot of talk, especially recently, with the uh, potential remake of The Princess Bride, of people talking about like the disdain and like, why do they have to ruin what I like? That type of thing. And remakes don't ruin shit, but <laughs> shit ruins shit. <laughs> shit ruins shit. <laughs> like, if we can get over Rob Zombie's second Halloween movie, then, you know, we can get over most things. Uh, <laughs> But I do remember being just like, man, when I read that they were going to do Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart and the American version of this. And it's just like, this is part of a bigger discussion. I would just rather, like the Aladdin thing I said, I would rather they just re-release Aladdin <laughs> and, you know, put some new pops and buzzes on it. Or, you know, in this case, I would, I would tell someone, well, just go see this instead right but but here it's you have the extra argument of well it's a movie that's in french and there are people that just won't go see to a movie. quote eddie straight i have no sympathy for those people <laughs> yeah but i do because sometimes people that usually don't want for don't watch foreign movies they just need the right push to watch a foreign movie mm-hmm. and so it's kind of a shame that untouchables didn't become an oscar winner an oscar nominee because i think we would have people the motivation right to. uh but then another way to motivate them is you do the american version of that and if they like that they're likely to look at least not everybody but i think part of them are uh, is likely to go look for the original and see how how it works uh, if it's the same, whether the, whether the difference is maybe they like it even more. Yeah, the stats on it are pretty staggering. In a lot of countries, it's still like the most successful French movie that's ever been released. What was it like? Thirty million tickets were sold to it total. No, more than that. But I think it was thirty million in France. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it, it's a. I know it's a hard bargain. A lot of people with foreign films. My dad even. It's it's always really annoying talking to him about that. He's like, uh, I don't want to read. And it's just like, and he's not the only one. I dated a girl like that one time. I was like, hey, do you want to watch this movie? I can't remember what it was, but it was um, something with Marion Cotillard that was French. But uh, La Vie and Rose, maybe? I believe so. Yeah, because was that was like her big Oscar movie. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the response was, well, I don't, I don't go to movies to read. See, that was to me probably one of the biggest culture clashes when I first moved to America. Next to putting, you, you grew up with that, right? I mean, next to putting cheese on your fries, that was the other thing that just blew my mind here that people would see subtitles as a chore. Mm-hmm. Because to me, yeah, you go to the movies in Peru, uh, and unless you're watching an animated movie, which would be dubbed, you're just reading subtitles. It also, God, that's such an American way of thinking too. Of just like, so you know, I don't want to read. We make the best. No, no, no. Just oh. like we make the best. We make the best cars. We make the best movies. We don't. We shouldn't have to compromise and you know entertain the idea that someone else could make something better than we do. Yeah, but again, I'm sure I am. Uh, let's say close-minded about things in my life, and or I have been, and then something helped me along, and then once you know you open the door you it's it stays open yeah. usually so yeah. sometimes a lot of people don't like foreign movies all it takes is a right foreign movie to spark their interest and then now they have that you know it's and it's a whole new world i was lucky enough that i grew up in a in a place for all my complaints about peru and whatever 
it does bring movies from all over the world. Mm-hmm. So to me, international cinema was a thing. Yeah. You know, it was just part of life. Yeah. And I think probably at some point in my life, I just kind of made myself watch foreign movies to get over that hump. <laughs> probably when I was like in high school or something like that. But yeah. And I want to correct myself here so I don't sound like a dill weed on the podcast. The Untouchables sold 30 million tickets outside of France. And so uh, I think around 20 million in France. It did some business. <laughs> so that really is like superhero movie shit, like $430 million. So I'm assuming it launched the careers. I mean, we know it launched the career of Omar Sy, or at least that's how I came to know Omar Sy. And I've seen him in other movies since. Mm-hmm. I. I glanced at the IMDb page of these two directors. I haven't seen anything. Uh, yeah, it looked like since. they only made about like two or three movies since then. Um, and I'm gonna chalk that up to distribution because I'm sure if I'd seen a movie advertised as from the directors of The Untouchables, I would have watched it. Yeah, but really, you know, it's like I should probably make the effort to go and check another one out, see if this was a fluke mm-hmm. or if they're really always this good. <laughs> and our boy uh, Francois. Yeah, Francois. He. He strikes me as a seasoned French actor. <laughs> Steadfast French actor. He's he's like the Ed Harris of France. Um, great. Both of them. Excellent in this. And um, all the supporting cast. The only real person I could be like, me, is the girl who plays his daughter. But she's not because in it enough. She just strikes you as so American. Yeah. Right? Like, like they're trying to make like an American in this movie. Yeah. You know, all this intense overanalyzing and, you know, filters that we're putting this through. It's not really about that. It's just a good movie that uh, is the sum of its parts, has a really good cast, a good story, a simple story, and a good set of filmmakers on it, too. Because, like I said, performances are one thing, but the actual look of the movie is very clean and very uh, crisp and color palette and you know they don't really sway away a lot of it's kind of faded dull colors and it all kind of just pops together it's such a good opening too um oh god yeah the way that it really messes with you because you're right you like you mentioned Contreras corner you don't really know what's going on when it first opens so you don't know if you're witnessing an emergency or 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 what yeah right and then but then once everything is revealed and uh you get that stylized opening sequence with yes, the credits and everything. The credits yeah. and the song and they're they're both singing and bopping their heads. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it tells you exactly what kind of movie you're in for. And sometimes you get movies like that that then sort of betray their tone towards the end because it's a movie about uh quadriplegic, so you think it's gonna get sad. That's what I was talking about earlier when I was saying that you always have the expectation that at some point, the other shoe's going to drop, and this is not going to be a fun movie anymore. Mm-hmm. But this movie, it just keeps that spirit all the way through. <laughs> yeah. It sets its tone early, and it keeps that tone, and God bless it for it. I know I, I, when I saw this in theater, I was like, oh, my mom would like this movie, and she did. Yeah, I, I have shown it to my family. It was on Peruvian Netflix. So Nice. Yeah. As soon as Where are the touchables? <laughs> Where's the wheelchair? Where's the wheelchair? <laughs> I'm assuming, I'm heavily assuming I'm going to have more to say about this uh, when we watch the American remake. So remaining thoughts I'll probably hang on to. For now, I'll just say, man, for what this movie is, I give it A minus, B plus. Yeah, I think I think five stars. I'm thinking it's either 4.5 or, or 5. I'm trying to think of why I would take half a star off because I was like, is it really a five-star movie? But it's really... The thing is, I've seen it enough now that... I enjoyed a lot, but I think part of the just that awesome feeling of watching it is like 
that feeling from the first time when mm-hmm. you realize that wow this movie is just this happy yeah right and so so that obviously goes away <laughs> after the first time you watch it but no I think this time you know I had forgotten uh, and this is probably influenced by the fact that I've watched The Upside more recently than than this original so I had forgotten how was it that they parted ways and it took me a moment to make sense of it because I was thinking, well, Philippe, just keep him employed. <laughs> it doesn't have to be a, a all or can, nothing. A all or nothing. You can do both. You can, he can work for you. He can take care of you, and he can still take care of his family. That's how most people <laughs> do it. <laughs> and, but then I realized that obviously it's it was not so much about financial issues. It was just about being present. And the point that they were making was he that, was doing what he thought was right. Right, Driz needed to be present in that kid's life, and yeah. that. He needed to take care of him. He didn't need to take care of Philip, and Philip knew that, or Philippe knew that it was he's a full time job. Yeah. So I I can get it right. And to what you were saying a bit earlier, uh, not every movie needs to be like this, but I think we could benefit from having more movies like this. Of yeah, that you strive to make a good, presented, well, uh, well acted film, but still the plot doesn't really try to go overreaching or anything like that, and just keep the tone happy. I think, yeah, there's room for everything. Because even like in the new Mary Poppins, there's the part where she's addicted to smack and they like, you know, get derailed for a half hour. <laughs> it's the part where that, the, I said the plumber, the, who is he? Um, the boot black? I don't boot, fucking know. I don't know. Where he stabs her in the chest with adrenaline. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> give her the shot. <laughs> Just give her the shot. Jesus. Uh, yeah, great movie. We'll have more to say on it when we... Uh, when we see how the Americans yeah, ruined it. Yeah, we see how yeah, fucking Uncle Sam took it and bent it over a barrel. Uh, winding down for The Untouchables, bringing us to our plug section. As always, the Festive Years provide our opening and closing tracks. The Festiveyears.com for all your Festive Years needs. Uh... You look up those tracks. Uh, Summer of 99 always closes us out. Last Stand brings us in, penetrating uh, your eardrums. Yes, gently. Twice a month, sometimes even three. <laughs> this this stretch for the autumn of the remake is going to be at least three. <laughs> um, yeah, and then our logo from our friends Hans Rothgeiser. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Uh, you can also email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com. He does logos. He does comics. He writes stuff. You can find the stuff that he writes at mildemonios.pe, P-E for Peru. He has two podcasts. He has Nación Combi. That's in Spanish. That's in every podcatcher. It's about Peruvian stuff, mostly politics. Uh, he has a podcast in English called Living in Peru. That's only available in iVox. But it's in English. It's about Peruvian immigrants, rather people that go to Peru as immigrants. Contact them if you need any of those things. Do you have a plug for this episode, Alex Mattis? I do have a plug for this episode. Uh, I'd mentioned my buddy Steve at the beginning of the episode, uh, giving us that fine introduction. Also his podcast, which will be in the links below. Another one of my buddies, John M. Keating. I know him as John. John from L.A. Bolo. He's a man of many names. Is John Keating the Robin Williams character from uh, Dead Poet Society? I don't know. I'm going to have to look that up now. But uh, my John, my John <laughs> Keating, wrote 
a movie that was released in 2017 that I recently was uh, fortunate enough to pick up on Blu-ray and give a view to. Uh, it's called The Concessionaires Must Die. It is a movie. When I talked to him about it, like I said, it was released in 2017, but uh, I think their distribution deal was pretty recently. So when I saw him in uh, Tennessee last month, I'd kind of brought it up because I'd seen him talking about it on social media. And we got into discussion about it's a movie about people that work at a movie theater. And I, I gather that much from the title. And uh, it's like a art house theater. It's kind of like the draft house and uh, big AMCs being built down the street and trying to run them out of business type of thing. When I talked to him about it, he was like, yeah, his character is the projectionist. So he was giving me like his characters, you know, backstory and shit and like his motivations. And I was like, brother, I was a, I was a projectionist <laughs> in the movie theater. He's like, he just stopped like, oh, well then you know what I'm talking about. Uh, he explained it to me that when he wrote it, he wanted to make an Empire Records for people that worked in a movie theater. And I was just like, dude, you're just, <laughs> you're just speaking to my heart right now. Um, he's a wrestling fan. That's how I've met him. Uh, we met on the road in uh, various shows uh, in Tennessee, most notably. And he does get into one scene, a wrestling t-shirt, which I appreciated. But it is, as you can imagine, making a movie about that, you can't really use chain names or actual right. movie names and stuff like that. But they do a really good job of uh, balancing that. And also the main character in the movie is kind of off in his own world a lot of the time because he's so into comic books. Uh, Stan Lee's in the movie for a portion too. The real Stan Lee? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like – it's like an actual movie they filmed and had produced and everything. I know, but Stan Lee – is not even alive anymore. So oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that's it's just now Stanley appearances on film are precious. Yeah, I think he has like maybe one cameo left in the MCU movies. If I remember correctly, he plays the main character's grandfather, and so yeah, uh, watching it just kind of going into it, not really sure what to expect. Uh, I, I knew John and um, uh, really enjoyed it. There was a specific part that hit so. <laughs> so close to me in which it's a montage of all the different customers that you deal with at the movie theater. Uh -huh. And it, you, Julio also would watch it and be like, this is on the fucking nose right here. <laughs> But uh, the biggest thing, and I told John, I immediately tweeted him. I'm like, you fucking buried the lead on this movie, dude. One of the women, uh, one of the actresses in that montage is Sasha gray. And when, as soon as I saw her on screen, I had to like, I like I was watching my movie. I was like, "Is it Sasha Gray?" And I paused it, went to the IMDb page, and confirmed that it was. And uh, as soon as I put the word out on that, I did have some people saying, "Like, yeah, I should probably check out this movie." Then. <laughs> uh, it's a really fun time. It, it, he's a great dude, and so uh, I wouldn't just want to blow smoke up his ass for no reason. And I think he would say the same. Uh, but I I really enjoyed it. It's a fun, easy watch. It, it's uh, clearly. Uh, we've talked about this before. You know, you can clearly see when people are having fun making movies, and yeah. that kind of helps you as a viewer get into it more. It's Omar Sy dancing in this movie. Goddamn right, yeah. So, The Concessionaires Must Die. You can get it on Blu-ray online. I do also believe it's available for streaming. Uh, any and all links we'll post below. I got it off Target's website for pretty cheap, and if you get... You can get that on Target and buy yourself a bunch of candy and shit, because if you spend more than $35, <laughs> you get free two-day shipping on Target's website, so... Concessionaires must die. All right. Can you imagine how soul-crushing would it be if they released a behind-the-scenes uh, just video where 
after every time they yell cut during that dancing scene, Omar Sy is just a complete asshole. <laughs> it's just like a big frown, just stomps out. That that would be a bummer. That would be gut wrenching. <laughs> uh, well, we're gonna keep plugging our friends. As kinky as that sounds. I was about to say, let's uh, take two, take two. <laughs> we're going to keep plugging our friends' projects. All right, there we uh, go. So uh, I said, we're going to plug this every episode until it happens. Uh, Other Worlds, Austin, the Sci-Fi Film Festival here in town. Uh, our friend Reed Lanford, he is, uh, he's one of the, the big names behind it. Mm-hmm. Always promoting it. Programmer. Um, I'm assuming he's still our friend even after that Nightmare on Elm Street combo that we just released. We'll see. <laughs> uh, but yeah, The Other Worlds Sci-Fi Film Fest, December 5th to December 8th. Uh, go to otherworldsfilmfest.com, get your batch, and then join me because I'll be there. I'll be the there entire too. Thing. Yeah. Uh, and then also, different friend, Stu Willis, that of uh, Draft Zero fame, okay. Chaz's co-host. So he made a movie called Restoration a while ago. And I, I actually watched it at uh, Other Worlds. They played it here as a feature. But now, so that was, it, you could only see it in Australia. That was the thing. And then, you know, if you went to the Other Worlds Festival, you got to see it here. But it okay. wasn't like released anywhere. Because I was like, where can I buy it? Where can I? Uh, well, now it's been released uh, internationally. Uh, there's this uh, website, this platform called Dust. And they're releasing it as a five-part web show, which apparently was how they originally wrote it. Uh, I guess they wrote it in a way that would work as a five-part web show or as a feature. And, you know, feature hit first, and now they're doing the web show. Anyway, it's really good. It's it's just like a trippy sci-fi movie. I really liked it when I watched it. Uh, I still haven't seen it in its episodic form, but I'm assuming it's just as good. So uh, just Google Restoration Sci-Fi Dust and uh, <laughs> it will show up. Uh, it, there's like a bunch of YouTube videos and then a link to the actual the actual web show, but uh, definitely worth checking out. Nice. So we're halfway through the autumn of remakes here for our next episode. We will be bringing things back across the pond for the incomparable Brian Cranston and the always lovable Kevin Hart. And just because why the fuck not Nicole Kidman? <laughs> so there, so it wouldn't be all American. No, she's Australian, correct? Yes. Oh, she was in Australia. Duh. <laughs> fuck that movie. fuck Boz Lerman good night everybody alright well that's going to do it for the Untouchables we'll catch you next time for the Upside in the meantime I'm Alex and that's Julio we appreciate y'all listening to the Contrarians we're right and you're wrong we'll see you next time